This episode of Startup Project is brought to you by Bear.tax. Bear.tax compels all your crypto transactions and makes it easy for you to file your taxes. Check out Bear.tax. That is B-A-R dot T-A-X. Bear.tax. Hey, Sajid. Welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, taking time. Uh, thanks, Nakarish. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, so I'm super excited to talk to you because uh, you're sort of an anecdote of a couple of trends that are you know that are playing out now in both angel investing and venture. You know you operate uh, remotely in a sense that you operate from Jakarta, but you invest in uh, companies across the world, and uh, you're also an operator investor because you also run your own uh, company in health tech space. Um, so that makes me you know, excited following your investing for a while as well uh, to have this conversation. But before, you know, getting into the angel investing and, you know, venture investing side of it, uh, if you can tell me about your career before angel investing and uh, how did you get into angel investing itself? Sure. Uh, So my background has been with uh, banking and finance, uh, which took me to all over the world, uh, from uh, Asia to Africa, almost uh, nine countries later, last was in Indonesia. And uh, from banking, uh, uh, then I left banking and moved to healthcare and worked on setting up a digital healthcare business, essentially uh, providing people access to healthcare who otherwise won't have it. Uh, So it started as a digital healthcare, then we brought in a health financing component because uh, many countries in the emerging markets don't have a proper health insurance or strong health financing uh, infrastructure. And from there, it expanded to offline uh, proposition like clinics, hospital, medical college, nursing college, et cetera. So essentially trying to create a healthcare ecosystem. Uh, that's one of the operator roles that I'm doing now. And at what point uh, did you start investing into startups? So it happened uh, you know, during my, when I was in banking days, um, uh, a few inv- few founders uh, reached out to me. Uh, they were trying to build uh, comparison sites. Um, they reached out to me in Indonesia, uh, where I was located at that point of time, and asked me whether you know I can help them, advise them through the regulatory landscape. So that was my first sort of like uh, involvement in a startup company. And then they were trying to raise a small round where I invested along with you know other investors, personal checks. So that sort of started my investment journey. That was sort of, you know, in a way, it's an accidental investor, so to speak. And of course, you know, from that time on, the other people on the cap table, they really wanted me to, you know, uh, wanted me, uh, showed me the way to how to invest in other companies, uh, guide me to different, you know, processes, methods, et cetera. And so that was the rabbit hole I went into, and I'm still there. And uh, you, you went in the rabbit hole pretty deeply right because i think you're one of the few persons who can say who has seen like 40 plus exits if i'm right yeah yeah uh yeah i mean uh, so yeah once i went into it it was really you know a great full full heads on so so i ended up investing almost thousand or so companies over the years uh so i've been this for the last uh you know started around 2014 so roughly seven years or so now and thousand plus companies are you the highest, uh, you know, are you the investor with highest number of uh, angel investments? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe. I mean, if not the highest, it would probably be one of the top ones. Uh, I'm, I, I mean, I have seen people uh, who have invested, uh, you know, four or 500 or so. So 
I don't know, maybe one of the, the only one I ones, yeah. at least in my research uh, is close to it is probably Nawal or mm. someone who has run multiple seed funds, which I haven't come across. Um, mm. But uh, I, I think you probably might be at the number one or two position, at least uh, in terms of as a syndicate, you might probably be the highest, uh, if I'm not wrong. Um, <laughs> you might know better, but uh, at least that's my interpretation as an outsider. Uh, so when you first started angel investing, you know, one of the, I, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, you started doing it uh, through angels, right? Uh, so the first one, obviously, you know, first few investments were direct investment, my personal checks into the company. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time, you know, then I slowly got to know about AngelList and the Funders Club, and, you know, WeFunder, you know, different platforms out there. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, so then I started uh, mostly through AngelList, but also a few other platforms. Uh, but, you know, I would say uh, my investments in syndicates uh, or other, you know, uh, that sort of uh, platform would be 80% angelist and 20%. Having built, you know, and done investments through Maisha VC, which is your uh, major way of investing. Uh, one of the things I personally see is there's a cold start problem, right? Initially, when you're trying to get things off the ground, you're almost like a marketplace for LPs and startups. And if you don't have enough LPs, you can't comfortably say yes to the uh, startups that you want to invest in. And if you don't have good startups, you don't have, you know, LPs coming in, subscribing to your uh, syndicate. So how how did you uh, solve that problem initially when you're getting started? Yes, so it's, it's uh, you know, you rightly pointed out, it's a very interesting uh, situation. So, you know, so my syndicate is roughly a little over a year old, right? So before that, I was investing on my own or through other syndicates. And uh, when I started this syndicate, uh, my first deal was a YC company. Uh, it so happened that, uh, you know, I came across this YC company where I personally invested. And uh, then the company also wanted to raise uh, more funds. And I approached to one other syndicate lead whether he would be interested to you know, lead the deal. Uh, you know, he had other deals on his plate. So he said, you know, he doesn't have the bandwidth and then I said, okay, let me try on my own. So that was my first syndicate. Luckily, the, the, the syndicate did well. Uh, it got distributed through a wider network on AngelList. And at that time, I didn't have, uh, you know, I don't recall, but I probably had 50, 100 LPs. So it was not a big LP base. But anyway, so the, because the deal got uh, quite a bit of exposure, uh, other LPs started joining. And then, of course, it started creating a virtuous cycle, like I mentioned, because more LPs joining, better deal coming through, better deal coming through, more LPs joining, right? So, so then the virtuous cycle uh, started. Got it. Uh, I mean, to, what do you think, uh, if someone is trying to crack this culture problem today, uh, because obviously it's a very competitive landscape uh, in terms of the whole syndicate model, you have you then have rolling funds, roll-up vehicles, uh, and just, you know, outside platforms. Um, for someone who's starting today and who's looking at a syndicate deal, how would you suggest uh, them to go about it? Uh, there, I would suggest uh, first, of, of course, you know, source a strong deal. Uh, and no one would expect the person to have a strong LP base to, you know, to start with. Mm -hmm. So one option would be to co-syndicate the deal. So essentially, you know, reach out to other leads who who, who has a, you know, a probably a, a much larger following or LP base. So to co-syndicate and. You know, that way uh, he's, uh, so essentially the way the co-syndicate works is that, for example, let's say X brings me a deal. I, I lead the syndicate mm -hmm. on, on, under my syndicate, but I, I refer that this deal is brought by you know, X. 
So, you know, X then gets an exposure to my LP base and some of the LPs will start following X syndicate and that way, you know, if he does a couple of deals uh, like that with other syndicate leads, he'll start gaining a sort of like a, you know, 50, 100, 200, 300, you know, LP base. Yeah. And once it reaches a certain, let's say 300, 400 LP base, then he can start launching his own deal. So that's roughly, you know, how I would suggest anyone new uh, to enter the space. Yeah, that, that's how I did my first, uh, uh investment as well. I co-syndicated mm-hmm. with someone um, that I knew very well before uh, and have been following. Um, yeah, I think you're on point because I think the people who are otherwise successful are people who have large, you know, either Twitter following, you know, I think Sahil who does a successful rolling fund. If you have a separate clout altogether individually being an entrepreneur or an investor outside, I think then you're also a good candidate to start. But otherwise, if you're if you don't have that sort of a clout, I think this is the best way. Um, so moving on from um, like most uh, like early successful leads, right? Like Jason uh, Calacanis or Zach who did the, um, you know, cruise deal for, you know, which was acquired by GM. Most often you see them graduating, um, you know, to do funds, right? Jason moved out of the platform and famously runs the most largest syndicate um, or at least he's says we don't know if it is the most largest um and you know zach also does his syndicate but also runs his own fund uh are you also looking to graduate beyond what you're doing with my asia or do you have plans or uh, you're you're okay with playing in this you know pre-seed seed stage where you uh, are doing it primarily through the syndicate as a vehicle i mean i noticed that trend before. So what used to happen is, you know, like I mentioned, Jason and Zach and a few others I've seen, they started, uh, you know, with the syndicate model. Mm-hmm. But uh, after some time, you know, they found, uh, you know, either went off Angelus platform and of course, you know, have, you know, have their own funds because, you know, fund has many advantages compared to syndicate. Uh, but what I'm seeing nowadays is that a lot of people are actually continuing syndicate as well as, you know, the rolling fund. Yeah. that Angelis launched. So, uh, you know, I, I personally, uh, you know, there are pluses and minuses with, with both the approaches. I personally, I have a small rolling fund now, mm-hmm. uh, as well as I'm working on launching another fund, which would mostly focus on secondaries. So we can cover that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, but I think I will continue to use the syndicate model because there are some very interesting advantages with syndicate model compared to a fund. Uh, so I, I don't see myself completely moving off the syndicate model or off Angelus platform. Uh, I think that will continue, but I will have the funds on the side. Uh, uh, I mean, if you want me to elaborate on the syndicate thing, I think one of the big advantages of doing a syndicate compared to a fund is that fund has to have a very specific thesis, right? So let's say you want to invest in, let's say FinTech companies in emerging markets, in seed stage, so you can define your thesis of the fund and then you raise LP money accordingly and you invest. In case of syndicate, you know, the lead is relatively uh, free, sort of like a relatively free-handed in the sense that I, I, I can bring any deal that I like and which I think is a good investment. It may be in health tech space, it may be in space, it may be in US, it may be in Brazil, you know? So, so mm-hmm. the, the, the scope of the syndicate is much larger in terms of sourcing deals or bringing interesting deals. So I think syndicate would always be, uh, you know, for me personally at least, would be a good way to invest in future. Got it. Uh, I'm also curious about how do you think about rolling funds? Because one of the criticisms for rolling funds I see, and 
keep hearing is uh, what happens, let's say I subscribe to your rolling fund, um, but I missed that one particular uh, quarter where you know all the two unicorns that your rolling fund actually invested in. And we know that you know this um, you know venture is a game of power law and you know it's your ability to find the next Facebook or next, uh, Twitter or you know the next uh, maybe Coinbase or Airbnb is basically defining your success. At least that's the view uh, or that's the view that is promoted. So, how do you uh, counter uh, this argument when, as you know, as someone who actually is running a rolling fund? Oh, true, true. I mean, you know, that that's the risk or that's the sort of the downside. You know, every you know model uh, has its pluses and minuses. So, mm -hmm. rolling fund compared to uh, compared to traditional funds has many advantages in terms of LP commitment. Uh, you know, first, uh, you know, first, uh, you know, investment of funds. So it doesn't have to wait for a closing and all those stuff. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, then you run the risk of uh, if an LP does not subscribe to every quarter, let's say for next. So hypothetically, let's say I launch my rolling fund, you know, two quarters back. Now, if, uh, you know, in the next eight quarters, I might, I don't know, in one particular quarter, I might hit, uh, you know, one unicorn and some LP probably decided to invest in four quarters and then didn't continue, right? So yeah. that happened. I mean, if you think of a fund, I mean, I think the only thing about fund is that because it's a wider time frame, i.e., uh, you know, a fund usually typically invests over three years mm -hmm. and then have some money left for pro rata. And compared to that, so once you commit to that fund, you essentially are covered for three years investment of the fund. Whereas if you com commit to a rolling fund, you're essentially, uh, you know, covered for one quarter. Actually, you know, you go quarter by quarter. So, uh, so I guess that that's where the probability kicks in, right? In a fund, that part, I mean, you can say that okay, fund one has one unicorn, fund two had five unicorns. I probably should have invested in fund two. You can use that logic, but yeah. uh, again, you know, because of the wider time frame, I guess fund has a higher probability to hit that, you know, one or two unicorns uh, in a portfolio, right? So. So yeah, I mean, it's just a question of, uh, you know, as an LP, I think the strategy then should be that if you really believe in the lead, mm -hmm. then continue to, you know, because the amount can be very small compared to your fund commitment. So, yeah. you know, the LP should continue to, you know, invest every quarter of, of that rolling fund. And that's so where the probability goes up. Yeah, it's essentially for the LP to decide, uh, you know, whether he wants to continue at what time frame they want to invest in. I think that it comes down to essentially choosing the right time frame, whether to be involved in a fund or, you know, a rolling fund or a roll-up vehicle. Um, sure. So uh, you also mentioned uh, you're looking into a fund uh, for second risk, which is interesting because I think you're one of the uh, few people who also like uh, go into different stages of investments, right? Like you start from uh, pre-seed, seed, and you also do secondaries pre-IPO as well. So how, how do you think in general uh, which stage you're investing in? What is your decision process at that point is like uh, when you're looking yeah, at a seed yeah. opportunity versus you know mm -hmm. something like a secondary opportunity? And why have you even decided to do a secondary fund? Mm. So, you know, so two things on the, uh, that's probably, you know, one of the advantages of a syndicate. So for example, right now I have, you know, a very large LP base, right? So 2000 mm -hmm. plus, so probably one of the largest uh, out there. And, you know, because it's an opt-in method. So let's say I launch a deal, which is a pre-seed or seed stage. And of that large LP base, uh, you know, 15, 20 people or 30 people will, will actually like that stage and will invest in. But then if I launch a secondary deal, which is probably, let's say, hypothetically $5 billion company, which may go to you know, public in the next one, two years, then there is another group of people within that large LP base who, who prefer to invest in later stage, 
mm-hmm. given the you know relative uh, strength of the company, uh, you know relative uh, security of an exit and stuff like that, right? So mm-hmm. so syndicate that way gives me that uh, that freedom to to source different deals. Uh, in terms of the secondary, the reason I, I actually started it a couple of months back, so it's not very old, but the reason I started it is, you know, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of the companies which are in a very sweet spot. So for example, let's say they are, let's say a billion dollar company, which has very strong traction. And there is another company sort of in the same space, uh, which probably went to IPO at let's say 20 billion. Mm-hmm. Now, the first company, which is a billion, you know, there is all probability given the traction they have that they will reach probably five billion or ten billion as they go into you know a public. So, you know, here the here the you know risk is significantly reduced. The company is in a very strong growth trajectory, and we have a chance of doing four, five x even from this point, mm-hmm. which is a you know from an IRR perspective, that's that's going you know quite significant. So, so yeah, and we are seeing a lot of these why you know because they, some of the companies are taking longer to go to public. Or some of the companies, you know, are seeing traction too early. So we are seeing a lot of the early investors in those companies are actually ready to do some secondary to get some liquidity, and that's why you know I thought I should do it. So I did a couple of syndicates which have done quite well, and mm-hmm. uh, then some of the LPs reached out to me and asked, you know, why don't you do a fund uh, so that they don't have to go deal by deal, but actually pay carry on a total fund level. So I said, okay, fine. So then you know, so then uh, I'm now working on launching the fund and. Once it's done, it, it, will, it will specifically focus on secondary deals. So the fund has a very clear thesis, which is you know, invest in secondary deals, companies which are expected to go to you know, public or exit in next uh, you know, two years, two to three years max. So the fund, uh, you know, unlike, unlike a typical eight to 10 years fund, this would be a fund which is you know, where the life cycle would be three to five years uh, max. It's also, I think, another uh, thing that we see that is playing into this is, uh, whatever we imagine internet businesses market sizes will be, they're absolutely, you know, it, we are actually, you know, limited by our imagination. They're much more larger. Like, for example, recently when IPO, um, Airbnb went IPO, everyone's talking about, if you, even if you have invested at a billion dollar valuation, you would have still made a 20x or 25x uh, returns uh, on that investment. So I think you're definitely right. Uh, and I've been noticing the same as well in terms of later stage investments. But how do you uh, compare that with you know, what the mega funds are doing into going into early stages, right? Now we are seeing Tiger, especially in India, is going at seed level. Um, you know, you have SoftBank also, which is going at, I think, uh, Series A, Series B level. How do you see this larger funds, you know, moving back into pre-seed seed while, you know, as you rightly pointed out, there's a sweet spot at, you know, getting uh, later stage deals? Hmm, I mean, so yes, you could give another answer. So, you know, someone offered me to invest at Coinbase at 1 billion, and I said, you know, how big can this be? <laughs> <laughs> So obviously I missed that one. Uh, yeah, but I think the the point about uh, South Bank or Tiger, yeah, I mean, I, I think their problem is a bit different, right? So they have a very strong deal flow at late stage given the uh, you know size of the fund and everything. And they now want to enter very early at the sixth stage to mm-hmm. start taking stakes on most promising companies, right? So they, it's, for them, it's more like a deal flow of, you know, for their uh, for their later stage investment. So taking a bet on sixth stage, give them a you know, very good view of the company, uh, uh, you know, they can continue to increase the stake as the company grows if they feel like it. And then of course, you know, write a much larger check at the stake. So for those guys, it's more about getting a you know strong deal flow so that let's say 
hypothetically, you know, SoftBank doesn't want Sequoia to come in and scoop those late stage deals, right? So they want mm-hmm. to uh, get into that. So for them, uh, you know, the strategy is essentially to ensure the deal flow. Uh, and of course, you know, if you do a seed stage investment and that turns out to be a Coinbase or Uber, then, then the return is significantly higher than, you know, doing a late stage deal. Right? So, yeah. So that you know, I was, uh, for as, as I was research, researching for this conversation, I think you're only or probably a second person who said startup investing is not risky. It's almost counterintuitive uh, to what we hear in general in public. Obviously, venture in general is pitched as the most riskiest asset class, right? Uh, why do you, and how do you, you know, what is your framework around, you know, assessing risk uh, in early stage investing? And because often we hear investing in startups is the most riskiest thing you could do. Why do you think the opposite? Because uh, I think you said in one of the conversations, you know, startup investing is actually not risky. Yeah, I mean, I personally think it's not as risky as it's pointed out to be. Uh, you know, compared to that, I mean, there are many uh, many investments which are riskier. So, you know, so the startup investment typically suffers from illiquidity, right? So mm-hmm. you don't you don't get the liquidity as quickly as you want. Uh, you sort of start with the company. And of mm-hmm. course, you know, we know many companies fail, so there is always that risk of completely losing the capital and stuff. But what I've seen at a portfolio basis, uh, startup investments are, are significantly more rewarding compared to you know, typical investments like on public stocks and others. Uh, so, you know, so the important thing would be to do, to obviously follow a portfolio approach. So not invest in one or two, but you know, do a good portfolio approach of 20, 30, 50 companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that, you know, uh, you know, like the point we were discussing before that, you know, we tend to underestimate the market size of internet companies. Um, and this is this is only going to grow larger. Uh, mm-hmm. What we are seeing today, I mean, this, I mean, there's all probability that this particular sector will continue to do 10X in every 10 years uh, or maybe 10X in every five years. So this is going to grow rapidly. Uh, you know, it's more about the investing in the future than investing in the past. Um, and I think uh, startup investments, especially technology startups are sort of like investing in the future. Which is sort of the you know which is sort of where the uh, the real return comes in. So, you know, we tend to follow the investments, uh, you know, like real estate investment and others, which are which is sort of like a fast-looking investment. But when you're thinking of the future of of all these satellite companies, space companies, uh, you know, uh, DNA editing companies, G, you know, or even in the you know SaaS space, B two B enterprise SaaS and everything. So these are all forward-looking companies where I think. Mm-hmm. The market is so huge that even of a, in a portfolio of 50 companies, if one or two strikes out well, then you know the return will be significantly higher than investing in a real estate and others. So that way, I think it's a, it's not a risky investment compared to you know uh, compared to other options. Uh, so yeah, so I mean, as long as one can stomach the illiquid nature of the investment, I think this is a very good uh, you know way to create wealth. Also, what do you think about the change in liquidity? Because I think we are seeing more and more, you know, secondary platforms that are coming and facilitating secondary transactions, and even you know, you investing in secondary uh, as a, as as part of you know uh, your fund is almost a liquidity event for someone who's investing in a pre-seed, you know, pre-seed or you know, writing that first angel check, right? How, how are you seeing that uh, change? Because uh, at least in my perspective, I think we are seeing a little bit more liquidity than at least five years back. Oh yeah, definitely. But, and I think that will continue. I mean, it, it won't be so, for example, you know, the secondary will essentially happen if the company has reached hypothetically, let's say series C, series D, mm-hmm. 
mm. or you know half a billion or billion valuation. So so someone investing in pre-seed or seed, let's say five ten billion five ten million valuation, will probably still have to wait three four years to reach there or five years. But yeah, but it's not the typical ten years that we usually think with startups. Uh, nowadays, you know there are uh, you know a lot of uh, uh, focus on secondaries or giving liquidity to you know founders or early early investors. In fact. Uh, you know, I invested in a couple of companies personally as my direct investment, and we are already seeing, you know, some of those companies have uh, reached unicorn, and then we are already seeing tender offers uh, as they reach the, you know, the large round. There are already tender offers for early investors to sell a part of the shares. Mm -hmm. So that is becoming a common, you know, theme uh, for for startups, which has uh, done very well, uh, and there's a, you know, so to provide liquidity at least to. 15, 20% of the stake uh, for these uh, companies and investors. So I think those would be coming in more and more and we'll see this practice uh, more widespread across countries. Uh, yeah, uh, that trend will continue. I think uh, one of the things you mentioned obviously is you know investing across the globe, right? How, how are you looking at investing across the globe? Because it's always interesting when, you know, at least from my personal experience, uh, to invest in, let's say, you know, uh, African companies where I don't know anything about. I obviously can look into India and US and, uh, you know, make a decision. But how is your decision process? And also another question around decision making is you're obviously doing a lot more than, you know, what a typical investor does. Let's say an LP in your fund, right? Uh, you are making many more decisions. Uh, what is your decision process in general like so you know so two things um, one is i you know as a someone who has been to many of these countries so you know i spent five years in africa uh, you know many countries in asia and others so i you know one of the things uh, uh, sort of like a, one of the vantage point that i have is uh, going across all these countries and i am a firm believer that all these countries are on the same curve, but at different points, right? So mm -hmm. where US uh, was probably 30 years back uh, or China or India, you know, Africa or Latin countries are probably, uh, you know, 10 years back or, you know, or will be there in 10 years time. So it's sort of like investing in early days of in some of these large companies in India or in China or US. So we are sort of seeing those companies because, you know, one of the things that you notice across these geographies is that the idea is not very different, right? So you mm -hmm. see, you have Uber, you have Uber's version of Goja, Grab in Southeast Asia. <laughs> Interesting. Each of these companies are now $30, $40 billion. Or you, yeah. know, you have Amazon, you have Tokopedia, Bukalapa, right? So you have different versions of these companies. So it's not like they, they are trying to do something very unique. It's more about the you know business model might have been tweaked a bit. So for example, you know, uh, Gojek had their motorcycle rather than, you know, rather than car. Uh, you know, as a main transport. So, you know, so you may have seen some of the tweak in modular product, but essentially mm -hmm. it's not very different. So I, I so there's hardly a business model risk. It's more of the execution risk for this country, for these companies across geographies. And, uh, you know, I am seeing actually some fund type of fund built around the thesis that, you know, they are looking for companies which are essentially implementing the same model of, of their, let's say, larger, much larger counterpart in the US, but has traction. So, you know, so uh, we are seeing funds investing just in those companies from the frontier markets. Because, you know, it's sort of like early days of investing in Amazon. It's sort of like early days of investing in Uber. You saw, you know, that these companies, if they succeed, they'll be really big. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have an opportunity. To, we know the playbook because we know how it has happened before. So, so you can exactly know where this is going. Uh, and I find that very exciting and interesting to invest. And that's one of the reasons, you know, I do a lot of deals. So, 
probably what is sort of in a unique in my syndicate is that compared to others, I do a lot of deals outside US. Uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, so my deals would probably be 60% in US, 40% be outside US across all these markets, showing the same, you know, showing the same sort of trajectory in the growth. So I think that was, that's quite interesting. Uh, How long generally you take uh, to decide whether or not you're going to invest? So on the due diligence part, what I do is, you know, so I have a, a sort of like a questionnaire that I follow myself. So, so you know, so usually it depends on the, you know, first of all, you know, there's this introductory call where I talk to the founders and decide, you know, whether to do it or not. So if it's a no, then, you know, that that's usually an upfront no, because, you mm -hmm. know, so let's after talking with the founder 15, 20, 30 minutes, I feel like, okay, you know, this is not going to work or uh, it's not an ideal candidate for the syndicate, then, you know, that's an upfront no. But then there are two groups of companies where I'm very convinced that, okay, you know, like you, you talk with the founder 30, 40 minutes, so you, you, you see the attraction, you think, you know, you see the other names of the captive, you're very convinced it's going to be strict, you know, and then, uh, then of course, then I send them the due diligence questionnaires. Once they fill up the due diligence questionnaires, then I go through, you know, some other, you know, backend, uh, you know, due diligence, and then I launch the deal. So those would be very fast track, those I'm very convinced about. Mm -hmm. But then there are some in between, right, in the gray, where, I'm not very, I'm convinced, but I'm not super confident. So those are the ones which I take a bit of time. Mm -hmm. And then I, I, I want to follow the company for a while and tell the founder to keep me updated as mm -hmm. they progress their funding round and see who else is coming in and what is the traction looking like. And then if I'm convinced, then I bring those to So, So one is upfront, yes. And one is upfront, no, so to speak. <laughs> and then there's a, a big middle, which, which I take time to do uh, deeper, uh, you know, diligence. So that's sort of the three buckets. Got it. Uh, and in terms of, you know, the other sectors that is obviously very much, uh, you know, blowing up as sort of all the crypto companies that are coming up, I guess we might not even call them companies because some of them don't even have company registrations behind them. How are you looking at <laughs> investing in, uh, you know, crypto and what areas are you looking at uh, specifically? So, yeah, so there are, you know, a couple of things in terms of, uh, so I'm doing a few late stage deals, so, you know, in terms of exchanges, because I think exchanges are very interesting. Uh, they have a huge cash flow. Uh, they, of course, have to go through the regulatory compliance and risk, uh, manage the risk associated with, with the exchanges uh, in terms of licensing and others. But, you know, from a cash flow basis, these are very good businesses. And, you know, we saw that reflected in Coinbase's valuation. Mm -hmm. uh, and we know that Kraken and others are on the same trajectory. So. So I think exchanges are very interesting businesses. Uh, uh, and then of course, you know, I mean, there are you know, uh, companies which are into, uh, you know, so there's one company which is trying to replicate X-Infinity. So gaming space on blockchain. Uh, so those would be interesting. Uh, of course, NFT is a big theme now. So anything on the NFT would be uh, interesting. But of course, you know, like you're saying, uh, I mean, I talk with companies where they don't even have a registration. Uh, so, you know, then I tell them, okay, you know, first you have to register a company, otherwise we can't invest in all this stuff. So, yeah, so it's a bit of a wild west out there uh, uh, coming across to the, to the right company takes time, but I think it can be very rewarding because what is very interesting about a lot of the fundraise of these companies, they use what they call SAFT. So it's a, it's a equity, which can be turned into a token in future. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, the, then the liquidity game changes completely, right? So the typical yeah. stub investment where you are holding, you know, liquidity, you don't know, maybe six, seven, eight years, five years. To, uh, in case of token, you may get the liquidity within two, three years uh, or earlier, right? So, yes. so the liquidity formula changes significantly. Uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, but of course, Angelist has some strict regulations on what can be you know, uh, syndicated there. 
so we have to follow all those uh, given the risk associated with all these and regulatory risk essentially associated with these companies. And uh, can you bring to a syndicate a company which doesn't have a registration or does Intelist no. require a registration? Yeah. yeah. Got it. No, Got it. I mean, but, you know, you need a basic, yeah, basic legal structure. Yeah. Got it. Uh, but we're still seeing some late, I mean, really tire one names uh, involved in some of these companies without registration. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I that I don't know how they're doing it because, you know, I mean, you'd assume that if, you know, let's say X fund is investing in a company uh, without a legal structure, I don't know how they even issue the documents, right? So, um, so that's uh, that I thought very clear, but yeah, but I, I obviously, uh, you know, th those are very risky uh, options uh, for any fund to do. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I have talked with a couple of companies who claimed that they have X or Y investors, uh, and then when I asked them, okay, well, can you send me your 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 incorporation details? They said we are working on it. So, mm -hmm. so I don't know how, how those guys uh, are doing it, but uh, yeah, uh, that would be interesting. Got it. And um, we're almost uh, at the end of our conversation. Um, and uh, I want to know what you're most excited to see in the next you know, couple of years uh, in terms of investing. Uh, I'm, so I'm you know, a big believer of a couple of trends. One is uh, you know, the whole space, uh, you know, the companies that are built around you know, space economy. So I think that's, that would be quite interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, then, of course, in, in the biotech space, the whole uh, CRISPR. And, I mean, there's a lot of companies coming out, even if you've seen YC. A lot of companies coming out in biotech space. Some of those are very interesting and very accomplished founders. Uh, so it would be see it would be interesting to see some breakthroughs there. Uh, so th that's the other one. And then of course, you know, I'm always interested to see some of some companies in frontier markets of you know, Africa, Asia, Latin to really make it big. Uh, it, it gives additional pleasure because you know that you are supporting a company which doesn't, which is not the typical Silicon Valley one. And really made it big, so you know. So that really gives a lot of uh, you know uh, pleasure as an investor to see those uh, breakthroughs. Uh, you know, because you know the, what happens in a lot of these countries is that once you have one or two large uh, you know exits, that creates a whole ecosystem within the country. Right? So so if uh, you know if a, if a country has their first billion dollar exits, then that company generates a lot of wealth within the within the team. Those guys from the then go out build their own companies or invest in other companies in that startup ecosystem. So it's, it is a very nice virtuous effect uh, to the startup ecosystem of that particular country. So yeah, so it's always uh, you know uh, quite exciting to see these uh, companies from the from the countries which are usually ignored to make it big. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think we've seen that uh, with Flipkart in India, and that sort of triggered yeah. the next level of cycle that we are seeing today, mm. uh, and even yeah. other economies as well. Thanks, Ajit. Uh, thanks for being on the show and you know taking time. And uh, you know, looking forward to, for more investments from my Asia VC. Thanks, thanks, Nakresh. It was a pleasure. Uh, we really enjoyed the conversation.